welcome to the Primary Ride Home for Monday, May 13th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, the DNC announces new tiebreaker rules for the debates, Andrew Yang wants to abolish the penny, Howard Schultz appears to be reconsidering his independent run, half of the field could drop out after the Iowa caucuses, and Montana Governor Steve Bullock is definitely, probably, maybe running. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. On Thursday last week, the Democratic National Committee updated its rules for how candidates can qualify for the debates. This is the first major update since mid-February, and it's intended to deal with the size of the field and the fact that so many of the lower-tier candidates are almost identical from a polling perspective. Remember, the first two debates will be limited to 20 candidates. Now, I've covered the two paths to the debates here before, but as always, we have new listeners, so it's summary time. There are two ways to qualify for the Democratic debates. One is to get 65,000 unique donors giving $1 or more to your campaign with at least 200 donors each in 20 different states. The other method is to garner at least 1% of support in three polls from a list of polls approved by the DNC. Okay, as of May 9th, when the DNC made its update, there were already 11 candidates who met both criteria. They are Joe Biden, Cory Booker, Pete Buttigieg, Julian Castro, Tulsi Gabbard, Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar, Beto O'Rourke, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and Andrew Yang. Another six qualified via polls alone, and only one candidate, Marianne Williamson, qualified solely via the donor method. So, math, 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 that makes 18 candidates who qualified today, and the debate isn't until late June. Okay, so the DNC had previously said, and now this is in writing in the official rules, that preference will be given to candidates who reach both the polling and the donor threshold. So if you get both of those, you're in. And that's where the 11 who already meet the criteria are in pretty good shape. But looking at the math, and the best list I've seen so far is from 538, there is a link to that in the show notes, there are at least two more candidates on the list who don't yet qualify via either method, but certainly could. Add to that good old Mike Gravel, who isn't on the 538 list, and you're pushing it to 21 candidates. It is also quite possible that late announcements from Stacey Abrams or Bill de Blasio or Steve Bullock would crowd the field further, bringing us to a potential total of 24, and that's just the people we kind of think we know about. So, what happens if more than 20 candidates reach both the polling and the donor thresholds? That's kind of unlikely, but it could happen. So that is what the DNC is specifically trying to clear up with its new rules from last week. The DNC now says that in that event, it will give preference to the candidates with the highest polling averages. So what this means is you'd have to figure out a given candidate's top three polls, the polls in which they had done their best, and then average those percentages that they got together, rounding each percentage in each poll result to the nearest tenth of a percentage point. That gets tricky because, to be honest, you have a lot of candidates polling right around 1% or 2% right now, like right at the bottom of that threshold. So we might actually see a candidate bumped out of the debates because of one-tenth of one percentage point in one poll. The other wacky thing is that even if that tiebreaker method results in a deadlock, which it theoretically could, but almost certainly won't, then the DNC would give preference to candidates who had submitted the most polling results over 1%. 
Okay, I have a feeling that in four or eight years, the DNC is going to rewrite this whole rules page because it is kind of a mess right now, though it does give math nerds like me something fun to run through our spreadsheets. Next up, a policy proposal I have honestly been waiting for this whole cycle. Andrew Yang wants to abolish the penny. And while I usually don't take policy positions on this show, I just want to tell you, I also want to abolish the penny. Every candidate should take a serious look at this issue. And I'm not kidding. This is really a thing. So before you throw your podcast player out the window, hear me out. The issue of whether to continue minting one cent coins has been brought up for decades. And multiple bills have been introduced in Congress to ditch the penny. But none have passed. The main issue with the penny is that it costs more than one cent to make a penny. In 2017, it cost 1.5 cents to make one penny. Prior to that, costs have been well over two cents at various points, going up to almost three cents. The cost, of course, fluctuates with the market for metal, but it is consistently well over one cent worth of metal and energy and tooling and labor that goes into making one penny. And if that's not enough to make you wonder whether pennies are worth having, let's go a little deeper. Yang's campaign website lays out some simple reasons to eliminate the penny. Reading from Yang's policy proposal, quote, 1. Pennies are expensive. It costs more to make a penny than it's worth, costing U.S. taxpayers about $70 million a year, and most of the zinc that goes into them comes from China, adding over $2 million to the trade deficit. 2. Mining the zinc and copper needed to make pennies is bad for the environment. Three, counting out pennies at businesses adds up to almost 50 million hours each year. End quote. Now, what Yang doesn't get into is the other core argument against the penny, which is that almost nobody spends them. Pennies tend to fall out of circulation by being put into jars or literally thrown away or thrown on the ground because there is no longer any common product you can purchase with a penny. Now look, I have a bag of pennies right here that I use to weigh down my microphone stand. The bag of pennies is cheaper than buying an actual metal mic stand. It is cheaper to me, but it's costing the government extra because now they have to make more pennies. Because Americans tend not to actually spend pennies, unlike most other currency in circulation, the U.S. Mint has to keep making more than 9 billion pennies every year. And every single one of those costs taxpayers more money than they're worth. Okay, there are several major economies around the world that have eliminated the penny, including Australia and Canada, and it worked out fine. It saves labor time in dealing with counting out change, which in theory does add up to some kind of economic benefit. The logic there, by the way, is simple. When making a cash transaction, the business simply rounds up or down to the nearest coin increment available, for instance, a nickel. And this brings up one more issue, which is that it currently costs about 6.3 cents to make one nickel, but I'm going to save that for a whole other show. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? 
In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Former Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz made headlines in January after declaring his intent to run for president as an independent. Schultz is a successful businessman and had just released a book titled From the Ground Up, recounting his rise from being a poor kid in Brooklyn to becoming a billionaire coffee entrepreneur. It also talked about his politics. His key platform idea is to lower the national debt. And he went on a sort of combination book tour slash political announcement tour this past winter. But the reaction to his early announcement was, in a word, disastrous. In a CNBC story from February, Dan Mangan rounded up page after page of political analysts criticizing Schultz on everything from his actual policies to his personal charisma. The main argument against Schultz from mainstream political figures was that he had no chance of winning as an independent, but that he would likely siphon support from Democrats, thus helping Trump to re-election. But then again, if you want to run for president, you know, you have the right to do that. It's in the Constitution. And keep in mind that Schultz can afford to self-fund his campaign with his estimated net worth of just under $4 billion. Well, so Schultz argued that he was a centrist, that the partisan system was broken and that he didn't see a viable candidate in the field to challenge Trump. But then in late April, Schultz very suddenly went dark. And guess what else happened in late April? Joe Biden officially announced his candidacy. In a pair of articles, one for the Daily Beast and one for New York Magazine, several writers have noticed that Schultz has been suspiciously quiet lately. According to the Daily Beast article, Schultz has not made a public appearance in more than two weeks, and he has canceled three previously scheduled events during that time. His campaign aides say that Schultz is not dropping his bid for the presidency, but simply that he had back surgery and needs some time to recover. But what seems odd is that he also stopped his near-constant social media posting at the same time. And that's not all. His campaign stopped buying ads on Facebook on April 23rd, the day before Biden was supposed to announce his candidacy. Although Biden did delay a little bit, it was clear that he was going to run by that point. Reading from the Daily Beast, quote, Since Easter, Schultz has tweeted just twice. The first was to promote an op-ed he wrote on his trip to Arizona. That was on April 29th. The second and last tweet came on Monday when he tweeted a winky emoji at someone wondering if he was a character in Game of Thrones after a cup of Starbucks was mistakenly included in a scene on the popular HBO show. End quote. In short, the argument is that until late April, Schultz had an active campaign operation that did the kind of stuff campaigns do. Hold events, buy ads, post things online, and so on. And those things do not require the candidate to be in tip-top shape. These are just regular, keeping-the-wheels-moving kind of things. So while, yes, back surgery is a real thing and a real pain and recovery is necessary, it is looking unlikely that Howard Schultz will run after all, and this may be due to Biden. (music) 
Over at 538, Jeffrey Skelly does some very interesting math about what happens to large primary fields over time. We actually have a lot of data on this because there have been many primary fields with more than 10 candidates in the modern era, which Skelly basically defines as starting in 1980. There are two questions Skelly examines in his article. First, he wants to know, on average, how many candidates drop out before the Iowa caucus. Recall from last Wednesday's show that Iowa is the first in the nation to have a contest like this, so it's an important moment in the campaign schedule. Okay, so Skelly estimates that about a third of candidates in crowded fields drop out before the Iowa caucus. So if we assume that we'll end up with about 21 major candidates, which I actually think is kind of low, then we can expect about seven of them to bail before Iowa even happens. That would bring the field down to 14. But then what happens? Well, Skelly's second analysis looks at, historically, in large fields, how many candidates are still in the race four weeks after the Iowa caucuses. And on average, only 42% of candidates who start in the original field end up sticking around until four weeks after Iowa. So in this field, again, assuming 21 people start, you'd end up with only eight or nine candidates four weeks after the Iowa caucuses. Skelly does have a note of caution, though, mainly because almost all of his data comes from Republican primary fields. There just haven't historically been that many crowded Democratic fields to analyze. Reading from the piece, quote, History might be an imperfect guide for 2020, as there haven't been many Democratic races with a big field. In fact, just one recent Democratic primary has featured more than 10 candidates, the 1988 cycle in which eight of the 11 major candidates were still going four weeks after the Iowa caucuses. So the dropout rate wasn't very high, end quote. The main factor that might keep Democrats in the race after Iowa more than Republicans is the 15% rule. In Democratic primary contests, candidates who receive 15% or more of the vote do get some delegates whereas many Republican primaries are winner-take-all or winner-take-most. Skelly suggests that this throws a wrench into trying to predict what will happen in a Democratic primary when looking at mostly Republican historical data. Still, Skelly's analysis gives us a preview of some key things that will happen when the primaries begin next year. Iowa will create a major inflection point on February 3rd, and then New Hampshire's primary is on February 11th. Those two events should tell us a whole lot about the early field, but it also leaves out giant states like California and Texas that will vote on Super Tuesday, which is on March 3rd. So you've got candidates like Castro, Harris, O'Rourke, and Swalwell who will very likely stick around for Super Tuesday no matter what because they have their best chance of picking up delegates in their home states. And last up today, we have a strong indicator that yet another candidate is diving in at the last minute. For a while now, we have assumed that Montana Governor Steve Bullock might run for president. And with a series of tweets and a video over the weekend, he's indicating that yes, he will announce soon. Now, when exactly that will be, I have no idea. We'll have to see and I will cover it when it happens. I guess the best way to do this is just to go ahead and play his 38 second teaser video. There's a link to it in the show notes, and you might want to watch it because it does include some unspoken titles that are on screen in between the audio portions. Okay, listen in. 
two-term governor of a state that President Trump won by 20 points. This, like, weird creature from out of space, <laughs> a Democrat that wins in rural red America. A Democratic governor in that state who's pro-choice, you're for marriage equality, you've expanded Medicaid, you've expanded spending on education, you've protected the environment from corporate interests. Montana has done something that just might offer the country a way out of the mess we have gotten ourselves into. And here's the follow-up tweet that Bullock wrote after that video. Quote, one, I'm a two-term governor of a state that Trump won by 20 points. Two, I may have been called a weird creature from outer space, but I'm actually from Montana. Three. I have a big announcement coming soon, end quote. ABC News covered the video and pointed out that while Bullock makes a big point of being a Democrat from a state that Trump won, that is not unique in this race. Quote, Bullock would be at least the 24th person to become a contender for the Democratic Party nomination, joining a field that includes other candidates from Trump-supporting states, such as Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar, Mayor Pete Buttigieg of South Bend, Indiana, and Ohio Representative Tim Ryan, end quote. Well, that's it for one more episode of The Primary Ride Home. I've been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. Well, it is full-on springtime out here in Portland, and right after this recording, I am going outside to set up little bee habitats for mason bees and release the bees that are currently in my fridge. You know, I've been told that mason bees don't like to sting, but to be perfectly truthful, the last time I tried to do something like this, I ended up with a bunch of hornets in my pants. That's a true story. So, thanks for listening, wish me luck, and I will talk to y'all tomorrow.